0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, I'm really excited to have her. She's a returning guest for the third time. She's our first returning guest for three times, and that lets our listeners know how important the content that Dr. McClendon has for our listeners. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. McClendon.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, We're going to be talking about scrupulosity. I'll read a little bit about Dr. McClendon for those of you that are not familiar with her. Dr. Deborah McClendon is a licensed psychologist in the state of Utah. She is a clinical psychologist with training in marriage and family therapy. Dr. McClendon specializes in treating those with religious OCD, scrupulosity, and has launched an online course on anxiety and Obsessive-compulsive disorder, scrupulosity, and we'll link to both of those courses, listeners, in our episode description. She has published articles on anxiety and scrupulosity in the Ensign and LDS Living, and she's participated on many podcasts. She is, in addition, she has co-authored book, um, co-authored book chapters and articles on outcome assessment and group therapy. In the academic community, she and her husband Richard J. McClendon have co-authored a book on strengthening marriage, commitment to the covenant, strengthening the we, me, and thee of marriage. And that that book is covered in episode 231. Um, Dr. McClendon was on episode 191, talking about scrupulosity. I read about Dr. McClendon because of her Ensign article in the September 29 Ensign. And then followed up with this podcast, Uh, just on SoundCloud alone, 9,600 people have listened to episode 191, and almost as many have listened to episode 231. That brings a big smile to my place, Dr. McClendon, because so many are connecting with your expertise. And I know your practices, obviously, there's a long waiting list. And so that's why I'm so glad you've got these online courses so more people can connect with what you're doing. And the focus of what we're doing on today's podcast, our listeners, is I wanted you to become aware of our online course so that we can really scale her efforts, because not everybody can meet with Dr. McClendon. Um, and and so I want you to be aware of that. But then we thought it would be good to do a podcast just with to answer your questions. So about a week ago or two weeks ago before this podcast on Instagram and Facebook, I told people that I was interviewing Dr. McClendon. I asked for their questions. That I sent those to Dr. McClendon, and this podcast is really going to be her answering those questions. So, anything you'd like to share with our listeners, Dr. McClendon, before we just kind of dive in?
1: Probably just the awareness that this is a very painful disorder, and so your listeners that are struggling with this, I. I know the struggle. I feel the struggle, and I really hope that this will be helpful in some way today.
0: That's great. A lot of empathy, um, right there. Um, Let's. We'll just dive in. I and just I was amazed at how many questions came in. To be honest, Um, there are a lot of Latter-day Saints and people in all faith communities that are trying to understand this. So the first question is. It's kind of under this umbrella first area of the podcast, what is it, and screening for it. A question from Facebook, what is scrupulosity? Is there a screening tool or such as a questionnaire one could use to see if they have these tendencies?
1: Yeah, so many of us are familiar with obsessive-compulsive disorder. We call it OCD. And OCD is a disorder that's fraught with obsessions and also compulsions. So obsessions are unwanted, irrational thoughts that you just can't control. They're very intrusive. They just plague you. They go over and over and over it, just to a point, and many of your listeners can relate with this, where they're feeling haunted by these obsessions. And so, because of these obsessions, people get into a compulsive style where they're trying to make the obsessions go away. And because the obsessions are causing so much anxiety, it's so uncomfortable. So a compulsion can be a behavior such as the commonly referenced hand-washing compulsion for somebody with a germ or contamination OCD. But compulsions can also be mental. So saying prayers in a compulsive way is actually a compulsion rather than a religious personal worship practice. So you have the obsessions and the compulsions, and you end up in this horrible cycle because the compulsions do work to reduce anxiety, but only temporarily. So you do something and you're like, oh good, that feels better. And then the problem is the anxiety comes roaring back and you think, oh, well, the compulsion worked last time. It made it go away. I better do that again. And you just get into this horrible, horrible cycle. It's important to remember that obsessions are irrational. That's a really important piece for scrupulosity because there's such a a difficulty for people getting sucked into this um, trap of feeling like their obsession is actually a prompting from the spirit. But remember that obsessions are irrational. So there are different types of subtypes for OCD. So I mentioned hand-washing, right? So you can have like germ or contamination fears with your OCD. You can have concerns around order or symmetry. You can have concerns around violence or harm thoughts or um, sexual thoughts. And then you also can have religious concerns, obsessions, or doubts. And we call that scrupulosity. So those are different subtypes, but they're all OCD. And that's a really important point. Because as long as you continue to think that your obsessions are of a religiously prompted nature, meaning the spirit's trying to communicate that maybe you just have a moral failing, well, then you'll continue to try to address your concerns through religious means, such as just praying more, or just confessing more, or repenting more, or apologizing more, or reading your scriptures more, right? And you can see how it just goes on and on and on, when if you recognize that it's coming at you from high, unregulated, or poorly regulated anxiety. Once you recognize that, then you say, okay, how am I going to deal with this? I'm going to look at what the therapists say to do to deal with anxiety. So it's critical to understand that difference because you'll go two different directions. And one direction will continue to cycle the scrupulous um, fears even more, and one will quiet them down. Now, it's important to note that OCD is a neuropsychiatric illness. There's a huge brain component in this disorder. Um, One medical doctor, Jeffrey Schwartz, who authored Brain Lock, and some of your listeners may have read that book, says it's a biochemical imbalance in the brain that causes the brain to misfire. He uses the metaphor of an automatic transmission that under normal circumstances, our brain structures should just be working automatically and kind of being smooth and and switching gears pretty easily. And then he talks about in OCD, how the gears get sticky. They don't shift the way they're supposed to automatically. So then we have to try to make them shift more manually through behavior therapy. Um, And that is difficult because it requires a lot of conscious effort at first. And it's a real challenge, but then as people get more competent at that in Mm -hmm. therapy, it becomes a little more automatic over nature. So the neuroscience of OCD is critical. Um, A lot of it is found in the caudate nucleus, which is the automatic transmission and filtering state for the front part of the brain. Now, those of you who know about the front part of your brain, that's the part of your brain that controls thought. So you have a filtering problem in the part of your brain that controls thought. So it causes inefficient thalamic gating. The thalamus is the central relay station for processing the body's sensory information. So you have a problem with this gating system. And the metaphor that he uses is imagine in normal, normal thought, you have a thought, okay, that's coming. It goes through the gate, the gate opens, it goes through the gate and then the gate closes. Then the gate reopens to allow a new thought to come through and it closes. A new thought comes through and it closes. In OCD, the gate gets left open so that the thought just continues to cycle around and around and around and around. So when you might, as a family member, be feeling frustrated with a family member with OCD and saying, just get over it, just drop it. They can't drop it. They can't. So, and it's found in the neuroscience of OCD. So also this front orbital cortex is hypermetabolic. So if you look at brain scans, they're lit up, they're actually hot. They're firing at a much greater rate than those of us without OCD. So the orbital cortex is the part that's located over your eye sockets. It's right over the front underneath. And that's where thought and emotion combine And it's the brain's early warning detection system. So this is where you get the feeling in OCD that something's not right. It's just, and you can't shake it. It's just this, in addition to the intense obsessions, you just have this overall kind of sense of dread that something's wrong. You don't know what it is. And so now you've got to try to get to do something to make that wrong feeling go away. So basically your error detection system has got stuck in the on position and everything feels like it's setting that off. So someone with OCD, they can't just turn the thoughts off. They can't just shake the feeling that something is off. Um, So somebody without OCD can have a doctrinal concern, um, maybe a concern about sin or a question about doctrine that maybe is understood clearly or maybe not understood clearly. And they can be concerned and struggle with these ideas, but it's not to the obsessive level that you have with OCD, where somebody is absolutely tormented by these thoughts. And in scrupulosity, the thoughts are of a religious nature. Whereas if they had germ or contamination OCD, it would be fear about, for example, contracting an illness or germs in some way. Now, the... um, Listener asked about a screening tool. There's a couple of basic screening tools that listeners can just search for on Google and be able to find these. The first is called the Y Box, it's the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale, and it has 10 items. These are fairly easily administered um, questionnaires. And then the one that I use that's specific to scrupulosity is called the Pious, which is some creative naming there. This is stands for the Pennsylvania Inventory of Scrupulosity. They originally created the PIAS in 2002, and it had some additional questions. And then in 2007, they revised the measure because they found that there were a few redundancies that weren't really being very helpful. And so now that they've narrowed it down to just 15 items, it takes about 45 seconds for my clients to fill it out once they've gotten a kind of used to it. And it assesses two factors for scrupulosity, fear of God and fear of sin. And it really looks at two types of questions in there. It'll ask about their beliefs or their thoughts, and then it will ask about their behaviors. So your listeners can go look at that and then see how they score. You can score all the way up to 60 Uh, Clinical cutoff is 24 or above. So anything 24 or above shows that you're having enough distress in this area that it would probably warrant targeted therapeutic treatment. Um, It's interesting to note for for your listeners, um, different religious beliefs play out slightly differently with scrupulosity. I'll talk more about that later in the podcast, but just be aware that for listeners who may be of the Jewish faith, there is some. Um, will we'll say concern that the pious measure is not as accurate or valid for those of the Jewish tradition, because they have a lot more ritual in their religious tradition, and it doesn't get captured as well by the pious. It doesn't mean that those in the Jewish faith do not struggle with scrupulosity, but simply that the assessment measure that we commonly use may not capture them as well.
0: That's really helpful. Do you want me to go on to question two about which comes first, religion or OCD, or do some of these sub-questions under screening?
1: Yeah, let's do these other questions.
0: Under screening? Yeah. Okay. Here's a question from a listener. If scru- is scrupulosity the same thing as desperately trying to live worthy of specific blessings? For instance, if I could just live at a certain standard, do more good things, be more righteous, then I will find a spouse, cure my infertility— solve my mental health and not have this particular weakness, et cetera?
1: So the basic answer initially is no, it's not the same thing. And you might have an idea of that after I was just talking about obsessive compulsive disorder. So Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught there's a difference, therefore, between being anxiously engaged and being over-anxious. And this individual sounds like she's being over-anxious. So someone who's anxiously engaged in living the gospel is a devout follower who is careful, who's conscientious in all areas of their living. But somebody who's over-anxious is getting into kind of this this realm of toxic perfectionism, where you feel like you have to do everything and have in an error-free type of performance. And we are taught that we don't earn our blessings We simply try to live our life in a way that qualifies us for the blessings. Recently, um, Elder Renlund said, for your listeners from General Conference 2019, in his talk, Abound with Blessings, he said, when you receive any blessing from God, you can conclude that you have complied with an eternal law governing reception of that blessing. But remember that the irrevocably decreed law is time insensitive meaning blessings come on God's timetable. If a desired blessing from God has not been received yet, you do not need to go crazy wondering what more you need to do. Instead, heed Joseph Smith's counsel to cheerfully do all things that lie in your power and then stand still with the utmost assurance to see the arm of God revealed. Some blessings are reserved for later, even for the most valiant of God's children. So we do want to strive for excellence. We do want to be devout and careful um, as we seek to follow our Savior, Jesus Christ. But scrupulosity is at a much higher extreme and is getting you into that obsessive and compulsive pattern that we discussed earlier.
0: That's very helpful. I love those two quotes. Um... What's the difference between having perfectionist tendencies and having scrupulosity OCD and the need for specific OCD specialized treatment?
1: So perfectionistic tendencies are personality traits, right? We all vary in our personalities and we have different styles. And perfectionistic tendencies are one of those. And we can have this striving for excellence, this devout piece of us that's very conscientious And that can be a very adaptive or healthy type of perfectionism where you're not really trying to live an error-free life. You're just setting high goals for yourself. And then if you reach the goals, you can enjoy the benefit of that goal for the reason that you set it. But if you don't reach it, you're not devastated. um, And it doesn't impact you negatively in a mental health way. Whereas when perfectionism becomes more toxic or maladaptive, you're getting to this frenzy of trying to live a a frantic error-free existence. And that can be very problematic um, because it's not based in reality. And so people put very unrealistic irrational pressure on themselves to perform at a certain level, but they can never reach that. or if they do reach it, then their toxic perfectionism says, well, your goal must not have been high enough. you got to raise your goal again. So either way, it's it's a lose-lose. Now, OCD, again, is beyond just a desire to have high goals or even to be a little bit perfectionistic in a toxic way. OCD is this obsessive compulsive cycle that's very much based in the neuropsychiatric piece that we talked about with the orbital cortex there are cognitive domains that they've found that are specific to OCD, meaning kind of thought patterns that you'll also see that are very common. One is the overimportance of thoughts. Two is the importance of controlling thoughts. Three is perfectionism. So you see the perfectionism tie in there. Four is inflated responsibility. Five is overestimation of threat. And six is an intolerance Of uncertainty. So, yes, you see that perfectionism is a piece of OCD, but it's just a small piece. Things get really blown to the extreme in many aspects as far as people's thinking and their functioning. And then, certainly, you see it acting out in the brain scans as well. So, that's how it's a little bit different. And that's why there is a need for specialized OCD treatment. If you take brain scans of someone before, psychotherapy and someone after psychotherapy, you see those brain scans cool down. You can see the same effect happen if you give somebody OCD um, psychotropic medication, or you can see the same thing happen if someone is doing both OCD treatment and OCD medication. So it's very important because you want to cool down the brain. If it's constantly firing and hypermetabolic, then you can see exactly why you're going to be haunted, right? If your brain is firing, 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 and you cannot control those thoughts, you've got to learn to be able to unstick those gears and get them working in a healthy way on a more conscious basis. And it doesn't come intuitively. Anxiety treatment is actually paradoxical. Whatever we fear, we have a natural inclination to run away from, to lean away from and avoid as much as possible. And all anxiety treatment, not just OCD, is actually paradoxical. We lean into the anxiety, confront the anxiety, have experiences with it so that we can learn that we can actually tolerate our own anxiety, that overestimation of threat. We start to learn that the anxiety is telling us something is very scary. And really the reality is it is a concern, but maybe it's not as threatening as the anxiety leads us to believe. So treatment is very important. I would encourage any of your readers, your readers or listeners um, who are struggling and they feel like they can't kind of work with this on their own to seek appropriate treatment, I would recommend a psychologist or another mental health therapist that has specialized treatment in OCD.
0: That's really helpful. Um, and just for our listeners, there's kind of five sections of this podcast. That was section one, what is scrupulosity? Scrupulosity. And screening. We'll go on to section two, and I'll just, which is called which comes first, religion or OCD. Section three will be how to manage my scrupulosity. Section four, section four will be tips for missionaries, and section five will be how to support others. So on to the section two. How to which comes first, religion or OCD? And here's a mess. Here's a Facebook message. I would love to have a discussion regarding whether there is a link to theology and scrupulosity, which comes first, the indoctrination to a high demand of religion or o c d tendencies, or are they often companions. What a thoughtful question.
1: And let's go ahead and read the second one too, because sure. my answer will address both of those.
0: And this came from Instagram. Um, I have a question for your guest on scrupulosity. Is it always tied to religion? And if so, are certain religions' doctrine more punishing or shaming than another's?
1: So to answer these questions again, I'll I'll remind our listeners that OCD is an anxiety disorder. First and foremost, scrupulosity is about anxiety. It's actually not about religion. Even though the content of someone's obsessions is of a religious nature, the process of the OCD is about anxiety. So that's why you think about those subtypes we talked about earlier. Um, Someone who has germ or contamination OCD, is it really about the germs or is it their anxiety about controlling or not controlling the outcome of interaction with those germs, right? If someone is concerned about obsessive thoughts of harming someone, is it really that we think they're going to harm someone or is it the anxiety that those thoughts create? And then they end up in this obsessive compulsive anxiety cycle around that. So the answer is it's not actually about the content of the obsession. It's about the process of poorly regulated, toxic anxiety and OCD. So, being religious does not make one more susceptible to OCD. However, if someone has OCD and they have a religious belief, it might become manifest in religious ways. So, that is a very important point for your listeners. Your religious belief, whatever it may be, whether you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, whether you're Catholic or Jewish or anything Mm -hmm. else, your church, your religious belief, has not caused OCD. However, if you are prone to OCD and you get OCD because you have a religious belief, it may become manifest with that religious content. It's So think about it. We have good public policy that we should all wash our hands after we go to the bathroom. But asking us to wash our hands when we use the restroom or if they're dirty before we eat or whatever, doesn't create germ or contamination, OCD. So having a religious belief doesn't create OCD. But if we are prone to OCD, susceptible to it, then it, it might be visual there. So it can be common for people to get very angry at their church for all of the pain that they're causing, I'll put causing in quotes, right? And the suffering. And yet it's not the church that we should be angry at, it's the OCD. And we can grieve the pain that the OCD is causing and then work to treat the OCD by getting angry at one's religious leaders or one's religious denomination or their church or any kind of church issue like that will simply complicate the issue because you may end up with bitter feelings that really are irrelevant to what the OCD problem is about. And then you have to work through both of those issues. But if you can stay focused on the anxiety and treat the anxiety, then once you get your anxiety to a normal, healthy level, if you do have religious concerns in some way, you can work those out in whatever way you find appropriate. So it's interesting to note that also the intensity of religious distress as measured by pious scores was not in the research significant related to the patient's strength of religious devotion. Meaning if you come from a family That's very strongly religious, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna have worse OCD or scrupulosity. So, the intensity of the distress is not related to the strength of their religious devotion. Um, Also, religious identity does not influence the overall severity of OCD, yet, it may inform the manifestation or the presentation of OCD symptoms. Typical manifestation of scrupulosity differs by religion due to the differences in religious traditions, values, and doctrines. So the manifestation of scrupulosity does look a little bit different. For example, in devout Christians, especially born-again Protestant or Pentecostals, um, you have concerns in their obsessional themes with displeasing God, going to hell, and devil worship. In the LDS community, I see the uh, obsessional themes as displeasing God or doubting God, not being exalted, confession, immoral thoughts, and perfect honesty. Those are the common ones that I see. Um, In the ultra-Orthodox Jews, it more, more closely follows the forms of general OCD themes, such as contamination or washing and doubting and checking. Yet there is religious content with those concerns. So for example, they may be concerned about dietary or menstrual impurity or cleanliness before saying prayers, or they may be checking repeatedly that a phylactery is properly aligned throughout their morning prayer. Mm-hmm. So in that, um, in, the, in the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the content is uniquely religious, but it plays out in a more prototypical OCD way, such as the checking or washing, things like that. Now, for the devout Muslims, it's often similar to the ultra-orthodox Judaism. You'll see issues of purity, purity, dietary laws, concerns about accuracy of prayers and other religious behaviors. And then with Catholics, you'll they'll demonstrate a mix of these more behaviorally oriented fears, such as um, mimicking other forms of OCD, such as dropping the Eucharist during communion or needing to say, say Hail Mary, just right and specific belief-based fears, such as fear of going to hell or worshiping Satan. So you're getting a little bit more of a mix with the Catholics. And if you just think about, right, they have more ritual than maybe Mm -hmm. some of the other Christian denominations. And so you can see why that would then get mixed in. So I mentioned with the pious, there are two factors that we are looking at with scrupulosity, fear of God and fear of sin. Fear of sin tends to be more highly associated with the scrupulosity than the fear of God, but they do look at both of those. And you see the fear of God really more prevalently in the Muslim faith, whereas the fear of sin, you're getting most of those Christian denominations. The LDS and Protestant, you know, the Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, missionary churches, Reformed churches, evangelical churches, etc. Uh, the Catholics, the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And then interestingly, you can also, to answer your uh, listener's question, you can also have non-religious people who have scrupulosity. Because again, the scrupulosity is simply describing the type of OCD obsessions that you have. You might not be a believer in a religious tradition, but you may still have an obsessive, irrational, intrusive thought that has religious content. Fascinating so that so it's very interesting. I don't have any prevalence numbers to know how often that happens, but it's just nice to be aware that that can happen.
0: I love the context of bringing other faith traditions and what they may emphasize as part of those faith traditions and how that then um manifests itself in scrupulosity and I love you separating the two the scrupulosity from the faith tradition very yes. helpful.
1: Yes, and there's another piece to this that I want to address, I think would be helpful for your listeners. It can be very enticing to blame a religious tradition on scrupulosity because perhaps there was a teaching that caused you difficulty. And it's an important idea because there is something in the OCD research called thought action fusion. And it's fairly self explanatory the idea that if you have a thought, It's equal to having done the thought. So the thought and the action are the same. And they talk about high levels of thought action fusion in OCD. It's a faulty belief. And it's the belief that the mere occurrence of an unwanted thought is assumed to increase the likelihood that the negative event will occur. Or in other words, that bad thoughts are equivalent to bad deeds. So for example, I'd like to read a quote from a research article talking about how this may play out in a Christian denomination. People, are t- people who are taught or learn that all their value-laden thoughts are of significance will be more prone to obsessions, as in particular types of religious beliefs and instructions. Indeed, there are abundant examples of religious doctrine and scripture that appear consistent with thought-action fusion such as the Tenth Commandment from the Bible, which forbids one from coveting or wishing to have another person's property, and the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus warns that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. Now, what's interesting about thought-action fusion, highly religious Protestants have been found to hold stronger beliefs about the significance of their thoughts than do Catholic or non-religious individuals. Catholic and Protestant individuals endorse higher levels of this thought-action fusion than the, more, than the Jewish individuals, independent of OCD symptoms. Yet here's an important point, right? So it can be tempting to say, so these teachings of the Savior are causing these problems. Well, the research doesn't actually support that. There's some research now on thought-action fusion that shows that the thought-action fusion predicted OCD symptoms only in the Jewish individuals. So here's what they said. They said for Christians, moral thought action fusion was related to their religiosity, right? Because of the belief that we do have that our thoughts are important, but it wasn't related to their OCD symptoms. And yet for Jews, moral thought action fusion was related to OCD symptoms, but not related to their religiosity. So in other words, they said that these findings suggest that thought-action fusion is only a marker of pathology when such beliefs are not culturally normative. So for the Savior to teach us to watch our thoughts doesn't mean the Savior is creating OCD obsessions in us. So I think that's an important point.
0: It's interesting. This week, I got two DMs regarding thoughts and people pretty hard on themselves about their thoughts. And that's an interesting (laughs) segment. And I... I told them to be pretty, I don't have any clinical training. I, I hope to listen to that segment of the podcast, but I just said, it's kind of a lifelong journey. Um, I think be compassionate with yourself. There's no requirement to have 100% pure thoughts at this point in your life. I think just make gradual progress and feel like your heavenly parents love you and you're okay. Um, cause I just recognize, yeah, if you just put a, If you just feel you have to control all your thoughts and have 100% pure thoughts all the time, or like you talk about, thought leads to action, that can both of those can be difficult.
1: Yes. And um, a client and I did a little Google search one day about how many thoughts we have a day. Interesting. And according to our quick little Google search, it said that we have 50,000 to 70,000 thoughts a day. So most of us, um, those without OCD, as a thought comes in, Before we've even finished the thought, we've already sort of moved on and another thought's coming in. And we have just as many, and the research supports this, someone without OCD has just as many immoral thoughts, perverted thoughts, morbid thoughts, disturbing thoughts, boring thoughts, fun thoughts, happy thoughts, right? We have just as many of these types of thoughts as someone with OCD. But if you remember what I said about the cognitive domains of OCD, one of the first things that we talked about is the overimportance of thoughts. So someone without OCD can have a disturbing or immoral thought in some way, and they recognize it as just a thought. Yeah. They don't pretend that it has to mean something about their character or who they are. And yet in OCD, the obsession grows around that. It feels threatening. I can't have that thought. What does that mean about me? And they can't let that go because of those neuro- influences that we talked about. And so it becomes very threatening and every thought feels like an assault on their character. And so they want to be able to control that and correct that. So one researcher said, OCD attaches itself to each individual's most important or core values, but is not caused by those values. Thus, the fact that they have scrupulosity and not a fear of contamination or of being responsible for something horrible happening like a house burning down is because they view serving God and adhering faithfully to religion as high priorities. So I have a lot of clients who will come in and feel like because they have scrupulosity, they must have some moral failing at their core. They must not have enough faith. Actually, my clients could give perfect sacrament meeting or stake conference talks on any doctrinal question. They know the doctrine. And as we talk about the doctrine, then they will follow it up with a big but. And the thing they say after the but is all about how they still can't regulate their anxiety. It's about anxiety. It's not about the religious content. So it's just really important, I think, for listeners to be aware of that. And if you can focus your thoughts, uh, sorry, your efforts therapeutically on the anxiety, that's where you're going to make progress.
0: love that. Let's go on to section three. This is a section about how to manage my scrupulosity. I'll go ahead and read this first question from Instagram. Go ahead and just
1: read all three of these.
0: I'll read all. Great. These all came from Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, My son, who is both gay and has a mild form of scrupulosity, wanted to ask you, What are healthy actions to take in overcoming and dealing with scrupulosity? How do we differentiate between what is from God and what is just our own thoughts? And the second um, Instagram question for scrupulosity, I recognize this in myself, and I recognize this is how I was raised too. I want to be into my scriptures and walking the covenant path, but don't want to make my family's life a living um religious zealot hell <laughs> how do i find that balance pretty honest question and the third one is how do you maintain a healthy relationship with god with everything about religion and church and culture can cause you stress i'm working hard to connect with him but often i find it difficult to do so because of my struggles with scrupulosity i'd love some insight advice
1: yeah so these are great great questions And your listeners are right. We can create a living hell for our family and loved ones if we are not able to regulate our anxiety very well. The family members often become the person's um, authority that they go to for confessions. Was this okay? Was that okay? I did this. I did that. It can become very trying for family members. They can just be worn down. So these are really great questions. One, one idea I have is to go in and check out my two Enzyme articles that were published both in 2019. The first is kind of the part one of my content, and it was April of 2019. And it's an article on discerning your feelings. And it's examining how to discern between feelings of anxiety and feelings of the spirit. Uh, the spirit doesn't work the way anxiety does. They're they're very distinct. And if you can become an expert on the content in that article, particularly there's a chart that contrasts anxiety and the spirit. If you can become an expert at that content, then when you experience something, you can find where you are on the chart and you'll know, am I in, in anxiety land or am I in the spirit's realm? And then that tells you how to deal with your situation. If you're in the spirit's realm, you'll deal with it appropriate personal worship or public worship types of activities if you're in anxiety land you need to do it through the therapeutic means so Mm -hmm. things such as anxiety is very impulsive for example and compulsive both the spirit gives you space to breathe space to ponder space to journey but anxiety is like you better do this now or you're going to hell now And so you've got to become an expert at discerning between anxiety and the spirit. It can be very tricky. Sometimes I have clients who've been in therapy for months and they're still struggling with that because the religious content of their obsession is very deceiving. And they keep thinking, maybe this is a prompting from the spirit. Maybe this is a prompting from the spirit. So one thing you can always do to manage it is I always tell people, hit the pause button, hit the pause button get distracted, go do something else, even for a few days, let something lie. And if it is a true prompting from from the spirit, when you come back to it, the spirit will still be there to say, you know what? You probably do need to take a look at this. But if it's OCD or if it's anxiety, you come back to it, the anxiety is now kind of gone because you're on to other things. And it's like, oh, that doesn't really feel very important anymore. So that's the first Enzyme article. That's part one, discerning between the spirit and anxiety. Part two was published in September, 2019, and it's an article understanding scrupulosity. So it's more specific to scrupulosity, but I also have a chart in that article that compares the tenets of scrupulosity and how scrupulosity pushes you around compared to the tenets of pure religion and the purpose of true worship. So those would be some helpful areas. Um, another idea is, is, um, illustrated by a comment from a former client who said this as a Christian, I try to remember that the savior has felt exactly what I have felt. And he is always there. Even when I cannot see him or feel him. I also try to remember there are other ways to see his hand and evidence of his love outside of feelings alone. And his support may actually come through others. That's a really important piece, because anxiety corrupts our feelings. We are not discerning things as accurately as people without scrupulosity. And so because of that, many people feel, because of the anxiety is so strong and tormenting. They can't feel the spirit. So therefore they then interpret it that God's not communicating with me or God doesn't love me, or God is rejecting me, even a more active, Um, antagonistic role. Instead, take the position, my feelings are not quite online because I'm struggling with OCD. So I'm going to just take it as a given that I can't necessarily trust my feelings. So I'm going to look for God's hand in my life in other ways. And I think that's been a very powerful intervention for my clients because they can usually see very clearly other ways that God is in their life. But because they don't feel it, and I'll put feel in quotes, because they don't feel it, then they they struggle feeling abandoned. Also, another idea for managing the scrupulosity is to keep your life and behavior in line with your values. And when I say values, I'm not just talking about religious values or some sort of church guidelines or whatever. We have political values. We have Um, professional values. We have values about how we should participate in our local community. We have values about how we should treat our family members. The more that you keep your behavior in line with your values, the healthier emotionally you will be. It's when we deviate from our values with our behavior and our life gets discrepant from our values that we start to feel that dysfunction and it grows. So while you might not be able to Feel the Lord's influence because anxiety might be too high for you. Work through the anxiety treatment, you can still choose to live for him to the best of your ability at that time. So seek treatment for the anxiety disorder, but in the meantime, continue to keep your life active and in value um, according to your values. So, for example, if you suffer from chronic pain, maybe you have a bad back or a headache disorder or something. You can shut your whole life down because you're in pain. Or you can say, I'm going to have pain either way. So in the meantime, I'm going to go to my child's choir concert because I want to support my child. Or I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to work because I want to support my family or whatever. So we want to acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the difficulty with the scrupulosity, and say, and yet, while I'm trying to work it out, I'm still going to live my life, and I'm going to live my life the best I can according to my values. One thing that you want to try to do as you manage the um, the idea about the family is to not use your family members as your confessors. So confession is one piece. that gets, um, it becomes a compulsive ritual in scrupulosity. Oftentimes it will be confession to a priesthood leader. It may be confession to a spouse. It can just be confession repeatedly to God, directly to God. But oftentimes in scrupulosity, people are wanting a sense of authority to let them know that they're okay. So it'll often be an ecclesiastical leader or a family member or spouse in some way. And so one thing you can do to help your family members is don't use them for confession. You've got to withhold the impulse to get reassurance from them and sit with your uncertainty. A big part of OCD treatment is learning to tolerate the uncertainty that your anxiety causes. And the more you learn to tolerate it, the less those things start to trigger it and it just diminishes to the point where you can work through things and things may not even trigger you six months down the road that might be very painful triggers now. So those are just a few ideas about managing it. We'll talk a little bit more about supporting others and and that can speak a little bit more to your listeners as well there.
0: That's a really helpful section. I know when I did that first cod- podcast with you, Dr. McClendon, my intuition would be to not teach people to sit with their fears so to speak i think you even talked about what's the fear of spiders and part of that acra i can't even Ana- s- yeah yeah the fear of spiders is something. there right. you go we're all struggling listeners you're kind of rolling your eyes but
1: no acrophobia is not right they they had a big horror movie about it what was it
0: arachnophobia my wife An- yes with me.
1: arachnophobia yes
0: so she's helping us but um I think you taught me, and maybe it wasn't this exact analogy, that part of the fear to overcoming that is actually have exposure to spiders and be comfortable around spiders. And to me, that is just intuitively the opposite thing I would do. But then as I listened to you, it became very clear to me that is that is exactly the right thing, is to live with this and to learn to tolerate. I love some of the words you're using to describe um, what we do to help people with scrupulosity. It's very, very helpful, but that's where you need good clinical people like you that have the right tools to help us deal with this. So it's so helpful.
1: Yes. And I would like to comment about that for those who are not inclined to seek help from a professional for whatever reason. And maybe you feel like your symptoms are mild or maybe finances are a concern. Sure. My Mm -hmm. online course for scrupulosity is six hours of video lecture. And a huge chunk of that is me walking through point by point by point treatment, so that people can learn how to do the treatment and personalize it to their own situation. Then if they've gone through that and they still feel like maybe they need some help from a professional, then that's when you know a therapist might be helpful. But they could work through some of that on their own, even without a professional as they walk through that class.
0: And I love that class. It's actually you're posting about that class that caused me to want to do this podcast, plus all the new questions you're answering And listeners, we will link to that online course in the podcast description because I think there's just a need for that. Um, Number question four is um, tips for missionaries. Um, Here's a couple questions that lead up to that. This is from Facebook. Um, Thanks for discussing this important topic. Any tips for missionaries who have been diagnosed with it How do they find joy and perspective when they're immersed so deeply in a religion every day and have few outlets? Also, I would love to hear an answer to the question about tips for missionaries who struggle with it. I've known, I know for me, it's been extra tough as there were many rules I can consistently be measuring myself up against. So I think that missionary Situation. And sometimes, as you know well, that's when someone maybe first understands this is part of them when they go on a mission or when they get in that mission environment. So, share with our listeners thoughts on that one.
1: So, one very, very powerful intervention is actually a very simple one, sort of. It sounds simple, it can be a little more difficult to execute. But the first idea I have is to label the anxiety. When you label an emotion, it helps to reduce the emotion. And this is where I say it's easy to say, let's just label it as anxiety. But in scrupulosity, that can become difficult when people are misinterpreting. Anxiety. So go back to that April 2019 Enzyme article, become an expert on the chart. And then if you notice that you're on the anxiety side of that chart, label it and say, this is anxiety. Say, this is OCD. This is scrupulosity. I know what it is. I don't need to get sucked down this rabbit hole. So you can label it and then use some positive self coping statements that can just do a little bit of self talk, reminding yourself this is OCD. Obsessions are irrational. It doesn't mean anything. I don't have to get worked up about this. And you can just do some self talk. Now, obsessions don't do very well, for somebody who is mentally bored or is ruminating mm-hmm. about themselves, that will grow obsessions. So another tip that I could is going to be helpful for everybody, but especially missionaries, is instead of focusing on your own thoughts and becoming more concerned, the more you focus on those thoughts, turn your thoughts outward and focus on your missionary service. Think about the aspect of service rather than focusing on how might, How you might feel bad, focus on how you can help others to feel good or to learn the gospel or whatever you might be doing, whether you're doing physical service for them or you're doing the service of missionary work. As you turn your thoughts outward, that can quiet some of that obsessive rumination. Again, as I mentioned previously, find God's hand in your life in ways that are not just related to how you feel if you just focus on how you feel and you're struggling with obsessive compulsive anxiety you're going to have a really a really rough time now another idea is to have your parents purchase for you the online course or to have them send you a workbook that is called the OCD workbook and that workbook is currently in the 3rd edition and you can try to work through some of your obsessive compulsive anxiety through the exercises in either the online class or that workbook Um, many of those exercises can be pondered in your downtime where it doesn't have to take away from your missionary service Um, you can create some imaginal exposures that you're then thinking about while you do your laundry, do your grocery shopping, maybe tracting before doors, although we're not really tracting during COVID times right now as much, cooking meals, et cetera. So there is some downtime as a missionary where you can try to do those exercises that will help you get some treatment even while you are in the mission field. Now, it's also important to note that you do want to consider the severity of your symptoms as, as part of this. Um, and the degree to which they may or may not interfere with your ability to serve. So consider that it's it um, might be appropriate to seek treatment at home. You might need to go home from the mission, get the treatment that you need so that you can go back and return. If you are gritting your teeth and white-knuckling your mission and you are just tormented and absolutely miserable, Number one, your quality of life has gone down the tank. And number two, how could you teach with the spirit? Because you're not feeling it, right? And you're struggling so much. And how can you teach someone to embrace a gospel and to tell them that the gospel will bring them joy when you are suffering so much because of the obsessive nature um, of your anxiety, right? So the religious content is torturing you how do you then teach someone they should embrace that and it's going to bless their lives. So it's not a failure to consider returning home, get to need, and then you can return and teach people the joy that can be had in the gospel. When you're in a healthier place to be able to feel that joy yourself.
0: I love, that's a really good segment. I love where you gave permission for missionaries and parents to come home this isn't a spiritual weakness. It should be a non-shaming thing. It's not a failure. It's just a chance to get emotionally healthy so they can go talk about the restored gospel. The restored gospel isn't making them feel this way. It's their scrupulosity, their OCD. And so that's very helpful. And, um, yes.
1: And I've had several conversations with mission presidents and they have reminded me that the mission field is not the place to try to work through deep seated mental illness.
0: Talk to mission presidents, bishops, parents who want to know if their missionary, if their challenges their missionaries are describing to them are scrupulosity or not. Um, And they don't, their their missionary may be remote. They just may not have the tools. That's probably a hard question to answer, but I think priesthood, one of the reasons I love to do this podcast, I think priesthood leaders are giving them more tools and parents to separate a spiritual weakness um, that needs to be resolved through confession and scrupulosity, which isn't a spiritual weakness, and confession just adds to the cycle. Just any tips for priesthood leaders, parents, to diagnose this correctly?
1: I think one of the things priesthood leaders may notice most readily is repeated confession. Someone will come to you, and, and perhaps they are confessing a legitimate sin that you would agree that they needed to talk to the bishop or mission president about. However, if they have obsessive compulsive anxiety, that confession will only comfort them temporarily. They'll feel good. They'll be glad they talked to the bishop or the mission president. They'll feel good. Then their anxiety will start to get spinning again. And they'll say, oh, well, I maybe didn't share this particular detail. Or, oh, I remembered this that I forgot to tell them Or maybe he didn't really understand what I meant. Maybe I didn't explain myself clearly on and on and on. So then they go back and confess again and they go back and confess again. So that is a flavor that a mission president may not pick up on or a bishop may not pick up on the first time. But all of a sudden, the second or third time the person's trying to confess, you're like, something's off. Something's not quite right. So if a confession is prompted by the spirit, The person goes in and confesses, they will feel peace and comforted and hope for their future, and they will be able to move forward. If the confession is prompted by a compulsive desire to protect themselves from having to deal with any anxiety thoughts, the anxiety is just going to come roaring back and roaring back. So I I believe I shared in our previous podcast the story of someone who ended up in a suicidal crisis After he confessed to the police, he confessed to a bishop, he confessed to a stake president, and he still ended up in a suicidal crisis. So, the confession to a mission president is not going to help them feel better long term. And that's when the mission president or bishop can start to really start to feel this flavor. Or if they start to say, Well, maybe you didn't understand this, or I remember this detail or this detail. The Lord is concerned. With our heart. The word repent is shub in the Hebrew, and it means to turn. We're simply supposed to turn from our sinful ways and face God and seek after our Savior Jesus Christ. It's about the intent of our heart. But scrupulosity gets people so caught up in the letter of the law or this minute detail, they're off in the weeds and they're forgetting about the purpose of the gospel, which is to love God. So those might be a few things that could be helpful.
0: Those are very helpful. Um, I love the positive way you just described repentance. To me, that's doctrinally correct and full of hope and looking forward and the way Christ would want us to feel. Uh, Just a follow-up question that came to mind. I think there's probably two types of confessions a bishop takes. One is the kind where someone Um, obviously with a scrupulosity situation, or I think would just keep confessing the old prior sin over and over again. They messed up six months ago and they just can't, they just keep confessing and adding more details to that sin six months ago. And that seems, but then there's maybe, um, like a young single adult post mission that continues to mess up with pornography, which probably needs to talk to his Bishop about, um, But how do you, how does a priesthood leader sort of navigate if it's kind of an ongoing challenge um, that they keep kind of making the same mistakes, that it's not, that it's not a scrupulosity situation, but just, I mean, that gets a little more complex than just a prior sin. Any thoughts on that? And I'm not even sure if that question makes sense.
1: (laughs) How can a priesthood leader, I'll, I'll see if I understood. How can a priesthood leader discern if scrupulosity is at play? when there's also a legitimate repentance issue that it's needs to be it's kind of to an hurt.
0: ongoing like an ongoing pornography use issue that a bishop would be involved with um, and I, and sometimes that the ongoing sins could bring somebody that has scrupulosity into a much more negative way of feeling about themselves than someone who is doesn't have scrupulosity and the ongoing pornography challenge
1: Yes, I I think bishops can navigate that as they think about how frequently they are asking the person to meet with them because of that issue. If every single time there's any kind of relapse, for lack of a better word, into the pornography use, if they say, I want you to come back and talk with me, that could promote scrupulosity if this is somebody who's already struggling with that. But if they talk with them and then say, okay, we've talked You know, I want you to continue to work on this and then we can touch base down the road. You're giving them permission to try to work through these issues without having to confess every single time they might feel prompted to do so. So there have been times I've had clients say that I sort of feel my bishop encouraged my repeated confessions because he wanted to talk to me so much. You know, I'm not pretending to tell bishops what to do, but if if they consider this as a concern, Say, is it necessary that they really talk to me every single week? Maybe you can give them some space and say, let's touch base in a month or whatever. Then that might help them navigate that a little bit more. Also, there is a difference between godly sorrow and scrupulosity, right? If there is a legitimate sin that needs repentance, the person will have godly sorrow. It won't be driven by anxiety. And the bishop can discern the presence of anxiety as he learns more about anxiety and scrupulosity and if someone is very chaotic and pressured and rushed and they're even confessing parts of sins or details that they're not even sure about i've had clients indicate that they started confessing things that they knew they hadn't done but they just wanted to cover their bases to make sure they were good because it just terrifies them just torments them to think that they may have ever done anything that they didn't repent for. So anyway. That's really
0: actually a great answer Mm -hmm. (laughs) off the cuff. And it reminds me of the story you told me or in a podcast of a somebody who confessed stuff to the police that they actually the police investigated and learned they didn't do. And so your term of covering their basis and sort of over confession. I love the principle you teach. Is this based on godly sorrow or anxiety? And I think that's a principle that us as parents and priesthood leaders can use as a navigation to understand what's going on. Great answer. Okay, the next section, we have three left on the uh, to go through, is how to support developing children. And here's a question. Thank you so much for all you do, Dr. McClendon, and have done to made scrupulosity more widely known and understood with a couple big exclamation points. How can we help young children who are beginning to exhibit some perfectionistic tendencies? How can we teach concepts like grace in a way they can understand?
1: One of the things I would really encourage parents to do is to help your children practice flexibility and help them practice tolerating uncertainty. So for example, if you have a child who's working obsessively or even compulsively on a drawing, You can say to them, I know you don't want to stop, but I like it the way it is. It's okay to be done with your drawing for now. And if they have a hard time disengaging, you can ask them to pause and say, hey, why don't we go do a puzzle? And then you can come back and look at your drawing and see if there's anything else you want to finish. You can teach them to walk away before it reaches that, quote unquote, perfect place for them. So you're teaching them to be flexible and to tolerate uncertainty. Um, after you pause, if their continued work on the drawing is because of anxiety, once you interrupt that anxiety and it's kind of come down, they may be able to be they may be able to move forward. Um, when you discipline children as a parent, it'd be really important yourself to model flexibility, grace, and even repentance. So if you're disciplining them for poor behavior, don't come down on them in an authoritarian shaming manner. You can describe the behavior that was problematic and talk about how to improve that behavior for the future and how you're hoping that they can become them, but their best selves without shaming them and, and making them feel bad for the bad choice. Teach them explicitly about Christ's atonement cleansing them that they can move forward and have hope for their future, even if they did make a bad choice. Yet, if we as parents act like it's all over, that they've destroyed their life or that they should be shamed because how dare they do this or how could they possibly have done this? That's the message our child is going to receive. So model flexibility, model grace. If you make a mistake, apologize to your child Show them that you can apologize and you can make it right and you can move forward and that their positive regard for you doesn't have to be hindered. That will then model for them that when they sin, God's regard for them doesn't have to be hindered. As they repent and move forward, they can have hope. So I believe modeling is very important, but also teaching flexibility. Now, that may be easier said than done. I have a daughter that I've been trying to teach flexibility to since she was two. We tried to teach her the word flexibility and we've been talking about it since she's two and she's now almost 16 and we're still working on talking about it. That's honest. So, so it can, it can be a challenge for parents, but as you model healthy, appropriate behaviors, I think that's one of the best things you can do for your child.
0: Love that. And I love that parents are aware of this for you, parents, that are aware of scrupulosity and have young children at home, kudos for you um, for being aware of this and wanting to do things to help your your children. And I love what Dr. McClendon said, and I think you're going to be okay. Um, The next one, we kind of touched on this, but I think it's worth going back to is how to support a missionary child.
1: So I think it's really important to encourage your child to meet with the mission therapist if possible, so that they can start to get intervention while they're on the mission so they can start to learn some of the healthier things that they can do to combat the scrupulosity so that it doesn't get worse. I would purchase for them the online course, or if they don't have good access to online resources on the mission, I would purchase for them the OCD workbook. And again, that workbook is currently in the third edition. Now in your personal interactions with them, give them love but resist the urge to give them reassurance that something they've done is quote unquote, okay. And I'll talk more about that in the next section, but uh, the reassurance seeking is a big part of scrupulosity. And as we give reassurance, we actually compound the problem and make it worse rather than improving the problem. So what you can do instead of giving them reassurance is remind them that the issue is not a faith problem, it's not a moral failing, but it's an issue with anxiety that's not regulated very well and that they need to learn how to manage their anxiety. And as we've already mentioned, um, it may not be what parents want to hear, but you may want to consider whether it's appropriate to have your child come home to seek appropriate treatment. So if your child has mild symptoms, I believe they can probably stay out on the mission and be a very effective missionary and find joy in their service, even if they're struggling a little bit with some of these tendencies. But if they have moderate or severe scrupulosity, they will be tormented, especially on the mission because the religious content fills every waking moment for them. They don't get any real break from the religious content. So if they're having moderate or severe problems, I would seriously consider whether it's appropriate to bring them home. Again, you don't want your child white-knuckling their mission, that every time they look back on it, they just feel traumatized. You want them to find joy in their missionary service. So I think that that's just an important point there.
0: I'm glad we're talking about that kind of stuff. That's really helpful. For those that We did episode 199 with Tim Chavez, and the last 20 minutes of that podcast, Tim talks about undiagnosed scrupulosity during his mission, and it was brutal for him. And he then talks about being in his 30s, what he would say to himself um, back then. It was just a particularly helpful segment from someone that has scrupulosity. So that, along with what Dr. McClendon is teaching, I think is very helpful. Um. And this may be the last segment, how to support a spouse. Um, This is from Instagram. My wife was diagnosed with OCD and scrupulosity over a year ago. Since then, we've both done a good job managing the diagnosis, labeling feelings, and navigating life with scrupulosity. How can I, the spouse, support her during this? What things should I avoid doing to help her feel safe, secure, and most importantly, worthy? What a great question you know, from a very thoughtful spouse who recognizes this is not a spiritual weakness, but as you're teaching us, Dr. McClendon, a a mental health issue?
1: Yes, this is a really beautiful question. So you may laugh at my answer because it may sound that I'm not honoring the beauty of his sentiment. (laughs) Um, You can't make your spouse feel safe, secure, and worthy. You can't.
0: That's relieving in a way.
1: Yeah, you can't gift that to her. She has to learn to tolerate her own anxiety and her own uncertainty. As she does that, she will come to feel safe, secure, and worthy on her own. So as you were just talking about Tim Chavez um, from episode 199, I loved that segment. For those of you listeners who would like to go back and listen to that, This Scrupulosity segment starts at one hour and 24 minutes. And I wanted to actually share a quote from that episode, illustrating this idea. So this is Tim and his wife, Aubrey. And Aubrey says, can I just add that feels so counterintuitive to hear a confession as a wife, and I'm sure as a leader, and you can see that, oh my gosh, this is not something you need to be confessing. And so you want to comfort and give them all the certainty in the world that, quote, of course, you don't need to confess. And of course, that wasn't dishonest or impure or whatever it is. And then she says this that is so beautiful. She says, you want to just gift them that certainty again. And then she says this. I had to stop doing that, even though it feels so wrong to say, maybe you did lie. I'm thinking in my head, oh my gosh, he did not lie. I've been here through this whole process and that was not cheating. That's what I want to say. But I had to learn that I was literally making it worse by reassuring him that it was okay and that he was honest. And I just have to know when something sounds like a confession to just say like, yeah, maybe. So what I say to this listener, if your spouse makes a confession, Express your love, but tell them that they're making a scrupulous confession, that that's an OCD statement or whatever you want to say, that you can't hear it from them and you're not going to respond to the content of what they are saying. So you can encourage them to work their therapy and address the anxiety. You can reinforce that you know the anxiety is painful, I'm sorry you're struggling, but don't address the content, right? A spouse that may want to come home and and say, honey, I, I looked at another woman today for a second, and I feel like I need to confess that to you or whatever. Don't address the content of their confession. But if you want to talk about the process of their anxiety and say, I know this is really hard for you, I'm sorry, I love you, hang in there, let me give you a hug, whatever, that's Mm -hmm. wonderful. But in the end, you cannot make them sit, feel safe or worthy. They have to come to that by learning to have a healthy relationship with their anxiety. Once they do that, they can reclaim their sense of worthiness.
0: Wow. I already want to replay that four-minute segment about three times because I recognize you're reprogramming my brain um, to handle this situation in the right way, which is not my natural intuition. And my natural intuition um, would only add to to the burden, and would not be helpful, even though it's born out of love and kindness and common goals to bring our marriages together, what you just described is so helpful. And I, so I, I, think a lot of people listen to lots of this podcast multiple times to sort of rewire their brain on how to help people with scrupulosity or those with scrupulosity to have better tools.
1: Yes. And it's not intuitive, right? We usually respond to someone according to the content of what they just said to us. We don't usually respond about the process So if you're in a marriage dialogue and maybe you're having a disagreement with your spouse and they're being a little snippy, you don't usually step back and say, wow, honey, you're kind of uptight right now. You usually attack back on whatever they just said to you in a snippy way, right? I do that. and, And so we need to retrain ourselves to address the process of what's going on in the room. What's the energy? and ignore the religious content of whatever they happen to be saying. But you can acknowledge that you're not going to answer it. I hear you, honey, but that's an OCD confession, so I can't answer you back on that. But I sure love you, and I'm glad you're working through this, you know?
0: Love that. Are there any, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners we haven't gotten to?
1: I, I feel like we've had a very comprehensive discussion today. I would just like to remind people again, that scrupulosity in the end is not about religion any more than an OCD germ contamination fear is about the germs. Scrupulosity is about obsessive compulsive anxiety. And if you will address the anxiety and learn healthy coping and even engage in formalized treatment to be able to bring your anxiety down to a healthy level, you can reclaim joy in your religious belief and worship.
0: Beautiful segment. Um, Thank you for behalf of all of our listeners, um, our own family, Dr. McClendon. Um, I didn't mention her website. Uh, Everything we've talked about, her online course, um, courses and her Ensign articles and just more content is all centralized at debramcclendon.com um, Will you spell your last? I think they can handle spelling, Deborah. Will you spell? spell well, just spell the whole website for us, Doctor McClendon.
1: Uh, it's D E B R A M C C L E N D O N dot com, and there's a resources page there, and I have links to all of my articles and podcasts and other things such as the online courses, so they can access everything there.
0: And I just love the way you're scaling your content so that not everybody can make their way to your home for an in-person visit or a Zoom call. And you've mentioned Ask Me for other therapists at times that have expertise. So there's a a greater need here than resources. So I love the online courses you've developed and the references to workbooks and ways we can scale the content to solve this. So um, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for taking an hour and a half out of your day, Dr. McClendon, for um, being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.
1: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.